0: Throughout August, we're going through a series where we're talking about prayer. And our goal is to kind of rejuvenate and renew us in prayer. And three weeks ago, we looked for a section in Mark where Jesus tells the disciples uh, they have a situation in which they, uh, a father brings their, his helpless son to them and asks them to cast out the demon, and they fail. They fail publicly and miserably. And they want to know, like, why did we fail? This is something we've done before. And Jesus tells them that this kind can only come out by by prayer, And what they have to learn is there are certain situations. I mean, there are certain situations where you have the expertise and the skill and the resources to deal with on your own, but there are certain situations where you don't, and you are utterly dependent on prayer and learning which one is which. It's one of the key skills in growing in the spiritual life. And then last week, we started looking at one of those situations when um, that Jesus sees where he's going to pray for Peter, and it's on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter also, uh, or on the night that Jesus was crucified, Peter betrays Jesus. And the scenario that Jesus sets up is he tells him, he says, Peter, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you. He wants to shake you. He wants to shake you so your faith will fail. But I have prayed for you. And when you rise, you go strengthen your brother. So what we looked at last week is how Satan, we're in situations that Satan will try and sift us. He wants to shake us, and he's doing this to everyone. He wants to shake you in such a way so your faith will fail. And so we looked at Satan's sifting, his shaking, his trying to break you. And then this week, I want to look at Jesus' response is that Jesus is praying. And now you can imagine if you're Peter in that moment, there's a couple different ways Peter could respond. So we kind of do an alternate history. Um, you know, what Peter does when Jesus tells him that Satan is coming after you, he's going to shake you. He's coming. And you know, Peter, Peter. you know, demonstrably says, oh, no, I, even if everybody else falls away, I will not fall. Don't worry. So that's one response. We think there could have been some other responses. I mean, he could have said, Really? oh no, that's terrible. Uh, Help me. What should I do? You've actually already taught us to pray. Lead us not into temptation, so help me. Uh, Help me not to go into this temptation. He could respond that way. Or I wonder if he could have responded, um, okay, so Satan has asked to attack me, and you're praying for me. Okay, thanks, but... Maybe could you do something else? Maybe a little more? I mean, like, you're the one who's supposed to crush the serpent underneath his head, so maybe don't pray for me, just crush him? How about you just not let him in to begin with, and we don't have to worry about this scenario? Um, Is it really good, like, to my advantage that you're praying for me? Is that enough? You ever feel that way sometimes? Like, what situations? Like, imagine you go out to your car after the service, and you have a flat tire, and you're standing and looking at it. You say, all right, gather around kids. We're going to lay hands on the tire and we're going to pray it full. You know, is that going to be helpful at that moment or should you just change the tire? And so what situations actually require prayer? Why is it good news and helpful for Peter that Jesus is praying for him? And kind of as we, you know, extend that, one of the primary ministries that Jesus has, he's prophet, priest, king, his primarily priestly ministry right now is that he's praying for his people. He's praying for them. Why is that helpful or good news? That's what I want us to think about. What difference does this actually make in our life right now? And I have to be honest, this isn't really something I've thought a whole lot about. When we were going through the Gospel of John in chapter 15 and 17, it talks about this, and we referenced it there. But I would say the fact that Jesus is in heaven praying for me is not something that kind of animates how I go through each day. And after this week studying this, I just wonder if there's not this huge treasure that We're neglecting if it doesn't animate how we go about it. So that's our theme. All right. Satan is attacking, he's sifting, he's shaking, and then Jesus over here is praying. And that's actually really good news. But as I was looking this week, I was really struck by a couple different historical testimonies. You know, one's from John Owen. We referenced him a couple weeks ago. John Owen, you know, lived through one of the most tumultuous times in English history, you know, lived through a failed uh, revolution. And he was a part of the failed revolutionaries. And, uh, you know, his his friends, he had many friends who, uh, once King Charles II was reestablished on the throne, took his political allies, and they were uh, executed, drawn, quartered, cut in fours, and their body parts were hung at different entrances into London as a warning to all the traitors. And so every time John Owen would walk in and out of London, he would see body parts of his friends. And then he buried ten of his children because of the plague, and then he lost his prestigious, uh, he was chancellor of all of Oxford University, and he lost that position. And then uh, towards the end of his life were these incredible theological works on meditating on Christ. And he actually says that this idea that Christ is in heaven praying for us is the fundamental article of our faith, and it is the foundation of all of our comfort. Wow, it's a pretty remarkable claim. This is the foundation, the idea that he's in heaven praying for us is the foundation of all of our comfort. You know, Robert Murray McShane, one of the great Scottish ministers in the 1800s who really wrestled with fear and anxiety, said the thing that really set him free, he was often said that he was as bold as a lion, and the thing that set him free is he did the mental work. He said, you know, if I knew that Jesus was in the room next to me praying for me, I would, be, I would not be afraid. I'd have courage. But there's actually no diff- the, the distance doesn't make a difference because he is. Or Joel Beakey, one of the great modern theologians, has talked about how this doctrine and his church went through some very difficult times. This was the thing more than any other that encouraged them. And I was really surprised reading uh, something from Tim Keller when they planted Redeemer in 1998. So he's a young minister in his early 40s. Talked about once this, this idea that Christ was his advocate and in heaven and was interceding and praying for him was something that transformed his own personal spiritual life. And at the very beginning of their church, he says, This is a doctrine, this is a truth that's just absolute dynamite. And it can transform any life, any community, any church, and any city where it embeds itself in the people. But then not just their example, it struck me this week that Paul, you know, in the great chapter in Romans chapter 8, this is one of the most exalted uh, pieces of scripture in uh, in world history. I mean, this is one of the most remarkable writings in the history of the world. And one of the things in the end of chapter 8 that kind of sets him to, to fly as he starts thinking about these things. All right, what are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? and um, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not with him freely give us all things? Who can bring an accusation? So if God's for us, who can be against us? Who can bring an accusation against us? Uh, against God's elect, God is the one who justifies, who condemns. Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, he's been raised and he's at the right hand of God the Father interceding for us. So he it's this idea that Christ is now living, interceding, praying for us, and then it, he launches. Then then I am persuaded that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then goes on this whole string of all these things that cannot separate them. And so let's think about how this thing, this reality, can kind of touch you and minister to you and meet you at your deepest, uh, the deepest place in your experience. So I mean, we all know what it's like to be just internally discouraged. We all know what it's like from last week to feel d- Divided to feel like we're not living up to our own expectations or to make a promise like Peter does and then to break that promise and have it break us. We know what it's like. We know what it's like to be so dry where we feel like we can't sing these songs or we can't pray these prayers. And when we pray, it just feels just vapid and without any energy or life or it's just hitting the ceiling and going nowhere. And it's such an encouragement in times like that to know that we don't pray alone that he's praying for us, that he's with us. He's praying with you and for you. So what I want to do is look at this from two different angles this morning. The fact that it's Jesus who's praying for us is really good news. So kind of from his perspective, why is it good news that it's Jesus praying for us? And not just like, you know, your your neighbor or your Aunt Matilda or someone else. This is Jesus who's praying for you. And then what will that mean if that truth, if you become like Paul, you become persuaded of that? What will it free you from? So let's think about the first thing, just that from Jesus' perspective, this is really good news. Why is it? Helpful and maybe the theme verse for this, because all of Hebrews, book of Hebrews, one of the great themes is what does it mean that Jesus is our high priest? In chapter seven, verse twenty-five, in uh, Hebrews, it talks about uh, that he's able to save to the uttermost, or able to save completely all those who come to God through him, since he lives, he always lives, he ever lives, he lives to intercede for them. So what does that mean that he lives to intercede? Why is it good news that it's him? So a couple of things. It's good news that it's him because he is both holy and heavenly. You know, he's the holy one who's interceding for us. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is holy and he has the clout to get into the Lord's presence. You know, he's heavenly. I mean, you all know what it's like if you're in a situation where you need help and there's plenty of well-intended people who would love to help you but can't actually do a whole lot. You know, And that's often why we'll just kind of revert to almost a Christian cliche and say, well, we'll pray for you because we feel helpless to actually do anything else. But here is one who is both holy and heavenly. He has access to the Father, and then he has the integrity to be able to know how to pray for you exactly as you need, to pray for you so you can experience his perfect love and perfect purity. He's a great high priest, so he's holy. He's heavenly. He has access to the throne. But he's also eager and Eternal. His praying for us is both eager and eternal. Notice that phrase, He ever lives to make intercession. And this really was the thing that transformed Keller's life when he was younger. So he had the idea that Christ is our advocate. You know, every time he would sin or fail or mess up and he'd have to ask God for forgiveness and Christ would be his advocate and and would do it with a kind of a begrudging, like, again, are you asking for forgiveness again? Have you done this? Okay, all right, I guess. Here we go. I'll, I'll forgive you, but come on. And realize that he lives for this. He lives to make intercession for his people. You think about the things you live for. A couple years ago when uh, Gray and Dixie were living in the country club, and Gray's not a big golfer, and they, they had some family who were coming in town who wanted to play golf, and so he called me one day. It was very kind of reluctant. Like, I know you're busy, but... Do, um, do you have anything going on Friday? Because, and I uh, said, so, well, maybe. What, what do you have in mind? So well, we have some family, and we need someone to kind of play uh, golf at the country club with them. Would you be able to? Uh, yes. Yep. Yep. hmm Don't. Don't. No, no. No. Don't worry. I will be glad to adjust whatever. I will be there. You just tell me the time. I just said, you know, anytime you have family coming in town and need someone to take them out and play, I will be happy to do it. No problem. So, what are the things you you live for? My neighbor just, uh, they just had their first baby, and uh, they have different, she's a, she's a nurse, he works at Lockheed, and they have, you know, kind of different schedules, and uh, for the la ever since Cynthia found out they were pregnant uh, for the whole nine months, and then ever since the baby's been born, every time we see them, she tells them, if, if you ever have a difficulty with child care, and something falls through, you knock on our door, it doesn't matter if it's two in the morning, and I will take that baby. And the other day, I saw our neighbor, Cody, and he was like, something kind of, fell through. They didn't have anybody to watch the, uh, their daughter. And I like, why didn't you call Cynthia? And he's like, I cannot do that to you. Like, he's like, look, I, you know, he's our neighbor. He sees the chaos in the zoo. He's like, she got four little kids. I am not going to drop another child off. No, like, no, 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 no. Trust me. Like, that would make her month. There's nothing that would make her happier than to watch your sweet baby girl and just to hold her. So, I mean, she lives for this kind of thing. And I don't know, I'm just thinking maybe it's something about our different personalities that I'm happy to go play golf and she's (laughs) (laughs) taking care of other humans. (laughs) But think about your life. I mean, what do you you live for? Where you say, all right, there's an experience I could have or there's a person I could meet or something I could do where I would drop everything to do it. And we live for this. That's actually what they're saying. That's what Jesus is. He's so eager to intercede. He is interceding for His people. He lives for this. He's eager. And that intercession is not something that's momentary or sporadic. It's eternal. You think about what it's like in this world of of the rise and fall of kings and different reigns and regimes. And kind of like if you had somebody on the inside that could get you into like Caesar's good inner circle. Well, what do you do two years later when Caesar's assassinated? Like what happens to your connections then? And here, saying that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and one of the key themes in Hebrews is he's never going to die again. He's victorious over it. So his intercession is both eager and it's eternal, it's continual. Then, a couple other things about it it's also, this intercession is also legal and it's personal. See, the idea that he intercedes or that he's an advocate, that's the word in 1 John 2 that we we hover around every week in confession, that he's our advocate. That means he's pleading our case. And, you know, one of the interesting things about uh, our legal system is that um, if you have a legal case that you have to bring before a judge, uh, you, in essence, are what your lawyer is. So like if your lawyer brings your case and he or she, if, if they're eloquent, if they're um, polished, if they're skilled, then guess what you are in court? I mean, you just sit there, but you're eloquent, you're polished, you're skilled. And here is Christ is, he's our legal advocate. That means we, in essence, are what he is. But not only is it legal, it's also Personal. So, in one sense, the cross is kind of the note that sins are forgiven, but then his intercession is when Jesus actually comes and takes us and brings us into the presence. It's personal. That's why it's so powerful when Jesus tells Peter, I'm praying for you, you specifically. That's why it's so powerful when Paul says that he's interceding for us, us, all his people. It's personal, it's specific. You know, one of the things I've been looking each Day, I've been going to the mailbox, eagerly awaiting my invitation to President Obama's 60th birthday party. Now, you may know this was the social event, maybe the decade. And so there was, you know, the A-list celebrities were invited, and I thought for sure I would be invited. So I can only assume that since we moved last year, the invitation just got lost in the mail. So what I had to, to do is, you know, I had the girls, they actually... Uh, came up with this. Now, can you imagine if I flew up to Martha's Vineyard last weekend and showed up at the security gate and wanted to come in? They said, all right, where's the invitation? I was like, here's my invitation. Look, it says Ben Bailey is invited to my birthday party from President Obama. I mean, here it is. I don't know how much pull this would get me. I don't know if the security guard would let me in or not. But then could you imagine if President Obama himself saw me? And came up and said, Ah, oh, Ben, I'm so glad you made it. Where's Cynthia? I didn't want just you to come. And it was like, oh, Come on in. Where are the kids? You should have brought them. And he put his arm around me and ushered me in. You know, I kind of look at the security guard and say, Huh? See? <laughs> and so that's what the intercessory prayer of Jesus, he's in the heavenly throne and he's coming praying for us where he's taking us into his presence. It's legal, yes, but it's also very personal where he ushers us into his presence. And then the last, it's also complete and compassionate. You know, it's complete. He's able to save to the uttermost. He's able to save completely. He's able to begin a good work and bring it about to completion. He's not going to stop till he gets you to the place that he wants you to be, which is conformed into his image and made into his likeness. Like what he tells Peter, he says, All right, Peter, Satan's asked to sift you. He's going to shake you. And I've prayed for you that your faith won't fail. And when you rise... He didn't say if. He didn't say, oh, it's going to be touch and go. I really don't know what's going to happen. I'm really eager to see how you pull this one out. No, he says when you rise, strengthen your brothers. is complete. But then also a key theme in Hebrews is that he's the compassionate high priest who can sympathize as he prays for us in every single thing because he's been tempted in every way and yet is without sin. He's compassionate. You know it's kind of hard to sympathize with people who don't struggle with the same things you do. But it's, it's a lot easier to sympathize with people who struggle with the same things that uh, you do. And he's compassionate. He can sympathize. And so here what we have, you know, the two great works of Jesus as our high priest is on the cross, he pays the penalty for our sin. But in his heavenly intercession, he's applying the reality of salvation. So on the cross, he accomplished everything we need for salvation, but through his high priestly prayers, he's applying everything we need to complete it. John Murray's great little book, Redemption Accomplished on the Cross, and then applied to the prayers in the Holy Spirit, applied to us. So that's good news. It's good news that it's Jesus praying for us, because he's the one who can then complete everything that is incomplete in us. But now let's think about for a second, what does it mean for us? What if like Paul, because Paul in Romans chapter 8, so you can turn there, Romans chapter 8 if you'd like, or we can pull you know, that passage up starting in verse 38 where he says, I'm persuaded. You know, This is something he's launched because he's thought about All right, Christ Jesus. Nobody can condemn us because Christ Jesus has died and he's in heaven interceding for us. So if that's true, if that's actually true, and I work that into my mind and into my heart, how does it work itself out from my heart into my life? He says, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So Paul is persuaded that if this is true, if this is what he's doing for us now, then nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And notice what he gives. Look at the different things. I'm persuaded that neither death, death. You know, this is something that Paul loves to celebrate. In 2 Timothy, 1 Corinthians, he says, in which now has been manifest through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death. It's been abolished. He's brought immortality to light and death is the final, vict- or the last enemy in 1 Corinthians 15 to be destroyed. And he says, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, oh, where's your victory? Where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, but the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory that has overcome death. And you think about it, death has no power to separate you from this love. And... Every other earthly love, no matter how deep, no matter how strong, no matter how committed, can be separated by the power of death. This is the only love that's strong enough that even death itself can't separate you from this love. And if you think about how much confidence would you have if you knew that even death itself can't separate me from God's love in Christ Jesus? How would you go out into the world and how would you handle yourself? How would you live? Death can't separate us. But notice the next thing he compares, he puts them in pairs. Death and life. You know, some people aren't afraid to die. They're actually afraid to live. He says life can't separate. You know, there's relationships in which somehow life just has a tendency to separate. And you see that in couples who, you know, they say we've just grown apart and we've become uh, distant. But here's the thing, that even life itself can't separate us from this love. So there's no challenge in life. There's no change in life. There's no circumstance in life that you can go through that can separate you from this love. Are you right now not so much afraid of dying, but you're afraid of living? You know, if you really knew this, then you knew that nothing I can encounter in life will separate me. A couple other things he mentions. Notice he mentions angels, principalities, and on down. He mentions powers. Kind of put all three of those together. I think those are references to the the spiritual realm, evil forces in the spiritual world, the devil and all of his forces. And Paul uses kind of that triad multiple times, like in Colossians, that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Or Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers of this present darkness. I think what he's getting is there's nothing in the spiritual realm that can separate you. Nothing. So Satan has asked to sift. He's asked to attack. He wants to destroy, but he's a defeated foe, and he's not powerful enough to separate you. And you know, this is something we live in a very materialistic world where we think all that there is are the things we can see and touch and feel. But you know, many people throughout the world don't live in that, that world. You know, Laman Sané, who passed away a couple years ago, was one of the great uh, missiologists who taught at, uh, he was originally from Gambia and then uh, ended up teaching at Harvard and Yale. And he talked about what it actually means to be an African. And he said, people from the West have a really hard time with understanding what it means to be an African. Because he said, what it means at its core to be an African is you believe that the world is teeming with spirits. Most of them are evil and they're they're out to get you and you have to find a way to protect yourself from them. But the reason why the gospel has taken such hold in my home country is because we're told by Paul that Christ has triumphed over those principalities and powers and we don't have to be afraid of those anymore. And, you know, we may not be African from that kind of conception, but we have these kind of big, gigantic, amorphous kind of spirits that we talk about that can move whole peoples. Like we talk about the economy or the market or different systems, and you think, well, what are these things? Maybe these are, you know, principalities and powers out in the world, and they can't separate us. Then notice he goes on the next thing, things present. Things present, things to come. What's here and then what's coming? You know, what's right in front of you? Do you believe there's something right in front of you that can separate you from God's love in Christ? You know, what was Paul experiencing? You can look at kind of his catalog of what he's experiencing in 2 Corinthians 11. When he's talking about false Christ who are kind of belittling them. He says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. I've got far greater labors, far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. And then here's the things that he was going through at the moment. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. I've been on frequent journeys. I've been in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from the false brethren, living in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, without food in cold and exposed and apart from these things you know, is, is that it? dangers everywhere you look and then apart from these things I have the daily pressure of all the churches upon me that's what Paul was going through and so when he says things present these are all the things that he's experiencing and they can't separate him from the love of God do you think what are you experiencing I mean chances are probably good none of us are experiencing things like that maybe even things that are difficult not like this but things present, they can't separate us. But then things to come. Why does he hit that? Things to come. No matter what is going to come in the future. See, anxiety fuels itself. It preys on what ifs. What if this happens? And says, so there's nothing that can come that can separate. And he says no height, no depth. It was interesting, why does he pick height and depth? Maybe it's reference to Jesus. He loves to talk about in Ephesians how he's been seated at the right hand of the Father, exalted to the heavenly heights, and then he came down to save us. So maybe it's that reference. Or maybe it's, in one sense, talking about us, that there's no height or depth you could ever experience that's going to separate you. You know, in Proverbs, the, as the Father's trying to train the Son, there's two things that he wants to warn him that he's going to experience that's going to test his character. And the two things are success and Failure says so the two things that will really test your character is when you succeed, it reveals who you really are, and then when you fail. And I wonder if Paul's not referencing those, the heights, the depths. There's no, uh, no, no height you can ascend in success that can separate you, and then there's no depth you can fall that can separate you. And he says, I'm persuaded of this. I am persuaded. And do you know this? And of course, he sums up everything, and there's nothing, no created thing that can separate us. If I didn't cover any eventuality or any scenario, there's no other created thing. Do you know this? You know, have you been persuaded? He has come to a settled conviction that he's settled and certain that this is true. He's worked through the truth of all of it. But I find it so fascinating. Notice what he's not persuaded of. I'm not persuaded that everything will just work out well in the end. I'm not persuaded that my circumstances will change. I'm not persuaded that I'll end house arrest and be able to get out of this lockdown and be able to go free. I'm not persuaded that I'll get justice at my trial when I stand before Caesar. I'm persuaded that nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. His only concern is that something could separate him from God's love in Christ. And notice the key word in, I think, in Romans here is that nothing can separate us. You might be tempted to think, all right, well, that's great for Paul. I mean, Paul's kind of like a hero. Look at all the things he was doing to to spread the gospel. So maybe he gets special attention or special treatment. He says, I'm persuaded that nothing can separate us. This is something that's true for all of us. And of course, notice it's the love of God in Christ Jesus. It's in Christ. That's the channel by which the love of God flows. God's love is not some nebulous, kind of vague love that's disconnected from who Jesus is and what he came to do. The love is connected to the cross. And in one sense, the only way Paul can get to the heights of Romans 8 is he has to walk through the depths. Like Romans 1, which talks about the wrath of God as being revealed against all ungodliness. Go into Romans 3, where we're all guilty and we stand uh, before him and every uh, hand on the mouth has to be shut. We're, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then Romans 6, where the wages of that sin is death. He has to go down through the depths before he can elevate to the heights. But are you, Do you know that? You know, how different would your life be going forward if you were persuaded of this? Of Jesus' prayer for you, his eagerness to to pray for you. And then what would it be like to live this out? You know, how can you do, you know, the Christian life in essence is doing unto others what he's already done for us. So that's what he's done for us. Now, how can we do that to others? You know, we're united to him, and part of what worship is, is to come into his presence each week. Then he sends us out. If he's praying for others, uh, in one sense, how can we join him? in praying for someone. So whenever someone asks you to pray for them or you feel a need or desire to pray for someone else, you're never actually the only one praying for them. So if someone asks, I ask me as their pastor, pray for me. I'm never actually the primary one praying for you. I just joined Jesus who's already praying for you. So as you're going out throughout this week, how can you join him as he's praying for the people uh, around you? You know, this beautiful image in the Pilgrim's Progress where uh, Christian is taken in, and Christian's an allegory, he represents Christians, um, not very subtle. Christian is a Christian, and he's making his way from the city of destruction to the heavenly city, and he goes into a house with the interpreter, who's the Bible teacher, who's supposed to explain all these different signs, and he has this one image where he comes up and there's a fireplace, and there's this kind of mean-looking man who's taking buckets of water and he's dumping it on the fire, but the fire keeps growing, and Christian says, what is this? And then the interpreter says, Well, come on, look around the back. And he takes him around the backside, and there's another man who has this cup of oil. And every time the one person dumps water on the fire, he pours oil on it. So every time the fire just keeps growing. And he says, This is actually so on that. So the fireplace is your heart. The fire in the fireplace is your love for Christ and his gospel and his people. The mean man who's dumping water is the devil, and he's trying to douse your love for Christ. And then Christ is the one who's on the other side, and he's pouring the oil of his grace on your heart. And this is exactly what we see in the very beginning when Jesus tells Peter, Satan is going to attack you, but I'm praying for you. You might think, well, is that it? Is that all you're doing? Could you do something else? Actually, this is the greatest thing he's doing, because as Satan is attacking to douse, he's pouring on his grace in mercy, so every week as we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded that this is the invitation in. We're drawn into His presence, and that He not only ushers us into His table, but He's praying for us. So, Lord, we thank you for this reality and truth. And on the night that He was betrayed, He took the bread and He broke it, and He said, "This bread represents My body that's broken for you." And then He took the cup and said, "This cup represents My blood that's uh, represents the forgiveness of sins." This is the way you enter into my presence and become one of mine. is the shedding of blood that brings the forgiveness of sins. Take in remembrance of me. So, Lord, we thank you for this reality. We ask that you help us to know this and to live this out in our own life. We ask that you help this truth to free us from all of our fears of death, fears of life, fears of things to come, fears of... Things that are present, fears from angels, principalities, fears from anything, knowing the reality that if Christ has died, he's risen, he's at your right hand interceding for us, that nothing can separate us from your love. So we pray that you would make us a people who know that deeply. And now we delight to uh, join in with you as you're praying for those around us. You're praying for our world. We join you in praying for the people in Haiti who are experiencing, you know, um, earthquake, storms, difficulties. We pray that you would pour out your spirit to encourage and do whatever needs to be done to bring uh, healing and wholeness. We pray for those around us that we know and love who right now they're experiencing Satan sifting them. He's shaking them. He wants to break them. We pray that you would keep them strong. We pray for those who are physically sick and are battling different ailments and and sickness. We pray that you would heal them. We pray for those who are battling fear and anxiety. We pray that you would free them. We pray for all of those who are beginning new stages and new seasons of life, whether it's a new school year or a new job or a new situation. We pray that you would walk with them each step of the way. Hence we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior will be yours now, this week, forever and always. Amen. Go in peace.